We often think of employees or coworkers in the context of their role, as we work with developers, marketers, managers, and others to complete our company's goals. However, what if we made the shift from thinking in terms of what we do towards something more meaningful, who we are as humans? In this episode of Humans Now and Then, I speak to Mark LeBusque, author of two books and the founder and director of marklebusque.com about how focusing on what we need as humans can help us thrive in the workplace. How do we create psychological safety in times like this? I guess this is where we start to get into this idea I have, which is a simple question is, what would happen if I treated the people who work with me like human beings? And, and I guess this is the essence of, of the work that I do. Mark LeBusque is known for his fearless and pragmatic approach to humanizing managers and workplaces. Mark is a sought-after coach, facilitator, and speaker, has published two books, and attended Harvard University to study the adaptive leadership framework. So, ready to explore how you can make the shift from a company of human doings to a company of human beings? Let's discuss. I'm Rebecca Scott, and this is Humans Now and Then. Mark LeBusque, thank you for joining me. Um, thanks for having me. I'm just delighted to be here. Well, I'm delighted to have you. I'm really excited for our conversation today because it's a very relevant topic. It's something that leaders are thinking about more and more, especially in the age of a global pandemic with multiple people working remotely. And it turns out that you have a level of expertise and experience in helping leaders think differently about the people that work from them on a more human level. So I would love to hear a little bit of your thoughts around human-centered leadership. Let's just start there. Yeah, look, it's it's an interesting one. And certainly this is the time I like no other. Um, I keep hearing people saying, uh, has it taken a pandemic for us to be more human in the workplace? And there's so much happening today where we are just working in a different way. And what it's highlighted is that there is real value for managers and for organisations to step more into this human-centred approach. And, and I, I guess I'd also say this too, Rebecca, is that it's not about one or the other here. It is about combining our technical expertise and all of that learning that we've done maybe through academia and experience with this more human-centred approach where we start to look at how do we start to create deeper connection and a stronger sense of belonging for human beings? So uh, I wanted to be really clear, this is about combining these two things to create a really powerful human-centered organizations. Absolutely. And I think it's one of those things that sounds very simple and sounds very obvious, but it's sometimes very difficult to execute in practice. Yeah, absolutely. So something to think about there, the simplicity versus complexity. The complexity of this is that it involves human beings. And when I look at organizations, organizations are simply, they're places full of different human beings. And one of the challenges is, is that we are a, whilst we're a social species, before that, we're a survival species. And if you know, we look at the Maslow's hierarchy, that we are looking to survive. So any sort of change that we might look to make to add this more human component will also bring about a level of potential loss for people. So, so we go into survival mode, and I can understand why it's so challenging for people to, to slightly change their approach is because what's rewarded them in the past um, the old system, the old way of doing things, you know, command and control, hierarchy and these types of things, it's very hard to step away from that. So I can totally understand why managers, uh, why organisations 
find it challenging because in essence, we're looking to survive. We're looking to hang on to an identity that's made us successful. And this is the adaptive challenge here. It's our change of values, beliefs and behaviours more so than a change of a process that, that will allow organisations to get there. So we're in, in essence, Rebecca, we're fighting with our hard wiring. Absolutely. And I so, I'm so glad you put it in those terms because the reality is, is that's how our brains work. Um, I think a lot of us would like to think that we've evolved out of those days many years ago when we lived in troops and we had a lot of threats around us and those threats were to our life, whether it be another group of people, <laughs> whether it be uh, an animal that might uh, come after us or, or what have you, our brains still work today in much the same way as they did uh, thousands of years ago. And so when we think about fear in the workplace, it's one of those things that kind of weaved in there, I think, fear in the workplace, the fear of not feeling safe, not belonging, not being safe as a part of your group around you, and not having a sense of safety in your environment. It really lends to the importance of a topic that has been discussed, luckily, more so now than maybe it has in the past, which is around psychological safety. Yeah, um, and I'm really glad you made that point that we, I think there's this illusion that we've progressed. Um, and look, we have progressed in some ways. Like the, the fact that we're, we're recording a podcast means we've progressed because thousands of years ago, we wouldn't have been able to do this. But our hard wiring hasn't progressed. So, so we are still in fear. And whilst we're now not fearing being eaten by the saber-toothed tiger, what we're fearing now is something just as bad for us is a restructure is a layoff you know the things that are happening at the moment are only really highlighting that in a big way and then we get to that idea that you talked about this concept of psychological safety and how do we in a time where fear is heightened for people you know i've just seen in my state we've just been locked down tighter than we had been for some time and and in over one day 250,000 human beings have lost their jobs so how do we create psychological safety in times like this I guess this is where we start to get into this idea I have, which is a simple question is, what would happen if I treated the people who work with me like human beings? And, and I guess this is the essence of, of the work that I do. It's bringing it back to what you said before. It's building deep connection and building a stronger sense of belonging. And I know they're lovely words, but I'm looking forward to talking more about what are some of the things that you can do as a manager or an organisation to help people feel like they're more deeply connected in an organization and more importantly feeling that sense of belonging to a cause that them as an individual can impact on their team and their department and their organization's overall sort of strategic goal so they might sound like fluffy words connection and belonging but they're critically important for organizations to start to get into their conversations particularly around psychological safety Absolutely. And I can say just with the leaders that I've worked with in the past, and when I've given presentations and workshops in relation to team dynamics, a lot of folks are resistant to that idea that the answer to their problems really comes down to our ability to connect with one another more effectively, feel safe in our environments. Like you said, the things that people might think are fluffy, the things they might not have learned so much in business school, but are really key aspects of success in the workplace. And there's been tons of studies and tons of research around the value of these things that we're talking about. So you had mentioned just a minute ago that you'd love to talk about things that managers and leaders can do in their organization to help promote these types of environments. So why don't you tell us more about that? Yes, yeah, sure. First of all, um, I loved um, I love what you said about you know learning it from school and, and textbooks. I think there's I think there's certain things that that complement us. So I, I like this idea of combining theory 
and the academia with this sort of human approach and by saying that we can't learn how to be human out of a textbook, but we can certainly learn some lovely and um, great business models that can help us to combine the two. Um, where, where do we start with this human piece? I look at it a bit like the, the building of a, of a house, building a home. And, and if we're going to build a home that's going to stand the test of time, um, you know, all sorts of shifts in earth and, and, and weather conditions and things like that, we absolutely have to have a solid foundation. And, and this human work, starts with a solid foundation, which I call trust. And it's so important that we don't just throw that word around like we do today, you know, I don't trust someone or I do trust someone. And the starting point for me here with this is to say, sit down with your people and have an open conversation about trust and about what trust means to them and particularly what elements of trust are important. And in my first book, Being Human, I talk about a simple conversation that managers should have with their teams is, what's your trust killer? What's the thing that you would find very hard to come back from if it was breached? And I look at three things here. The first one is motive. Do you have my back? The second one is capability. Can you do your job? And the third one is reliability. Do you do what you say you you will? And literally giving people an opportunity to talk about which one of those is really important to them. So that as a manager, you just start to get a, a good sense of what's important to your people around trust. Because as we know, we, we hear this a lot, trust takes a long time to build and a very short time to break. So before we start getting into the technical work of, of business, we need to start to do some more of this sort of human work as well. So I think that's that's a starting point, is focusing in on building a strong foundation of trust. And I think then from that, I'll just share a second one. I say as a manager with my last team, I told my people, you don't have to earn my trust, you have to lose it. I just trusted implicitly. Now, that can also be risky as well, but I just had a sense that people came to work with good intention to do good work. And I told them that. I, I believe you come here with good intention to do good work, not to destroy our team or our business. Now, once you have that conversation, then you get into the second idea, which I have, which is about creating that safety net. So people can then start to feel like they can experiment. They can try different things safely. I'll say safe experiments. They can challenge me as their manager and not feel like they're putting themselves at risk because they don't agree with everything I say. And then the third one I call, I call this third one, they can humanivate. So not innovate and humanivation. What I mean by that is start to put being before doing. So this idea that we create a to-be list and not just a to-do list because we're human beings, not human doings, but we've become human doings. And I, I want managers to start to think about what if we started to allow people to talk about how they're going to choose to be today rather than just what they're going to do. So I think that's, in essence, the start point. I might have rambled a bit there, but I hope you get a sense of where I'm going there. Oh, yeah. I don't consider that rambling. You're speaking my language. Thank you. I think trust is so critical. And I talk a lot about that too in relation to team dynamics, in relation to innovation, or as you call it, human, human innovation. <laughs> I love that. Because it really is the center point of a successful team or a successful relationship at all. So even if you look beyond the workplace, trust is a cornerstone to any relationship in your life, whether it be your neighbor or your spouse, or your significant other, or your siblings, or your friends. Without trust, there's no relationship. And that doesn't happen just outside the workplace. It's critical within the workplace too. Because as you mentioned, if you have the freedom 
to feel safe enough to disagree, which is usually a pretty key um, indicator of a healthy, psychologically safe environment, then people are going to give more to their work because they're going to feel like they are personally contributing something that is their own, that is themselves. They become a part of the work. And there's a lot there to also become a protective factor from disengagement and so forth. Absolutely. And look, I think that idea of them giving more, in essence, one of the things that being more human in the workplace allows to happen is that other human beings start to tap into that secret source called discretionary effort. So this going over and above because they feel supported, not going over and above because they feel like they're threatened if they don't do that. You know, For instance, working long hours because they feel like they just need to be seen by the boss, that's not supportive. But it could be that they work less hours, but they do more and they're more productive in that time because they focus on the right things, the right conversations. The point you made then about challenging is so critical, is allowing your people to challenge. And then the other thing I really loved that you said, Rebecca, was you know trust isn't just about in the workplace. Trust is the foundation for any relationship where humans are going to build a deeper sense of belonging and connection. It's got to start with the conversation about trust. And you know, I can't emphasize this enough. This human work is the work you need to start with. We tend to get caught up quickly in looking at what our yearly target is and how we're going to get to it and what are the strategies. And they're all important things too. But if we don't have the trust and we don't build that foundation, the rest of the house is going to be unstable. And that, that will happen on things like, you know, you'll end up with demotivated, disengaged people and ultimately increased attrition of your employees. And that's a very costly thing for organizations as well. So it, I think it all comes back to that trust element for sure. Oh, yeah, I couldn't agree more. It definitely is a cornerstone piece to a good, solid relationship between a leader and the people that they work with. Interested to know, too, other aspects or other things you're thinking about in relation to us venturing into the future. So as we mentioned before, the world of work has just been significantly disrupted. Many organizations, many industries have just been decimated. Some industries have fared quite well. So if you are, you know, Zoom, or if you make toilet paper, or you make hand sanitizer, you've probably done okay. Yeah. But organizations that might be more service-based organizations, or even like you mentioned, like travel, hotel industry, airlines are struggling. There's a lot of people that either have lost their jobs or at risk of losing their jobs. And from a leader's perspective, or an organization's perspective, that is a challenging position to think about is the potential that you need to let people in your organization go and the fallout, let's say, from doing that, the people around them that might stay at that workplace or the disruption that you've caused for the people that you need to let go. What advice maybe would you give to those organizations that are struggling financially and trying to make those decisions on staffing and if they need to let people go in their organization? Yeah, look, um, absolute challenging times. I, I speak to organisations in the middle of that right now and, and there's a grieving process involved with this stuff as well. Um, my advice, again, and I'll throw the H word in, is you do it as humanly as you can. And I, you know, I can think of an amazing example of what they did at Airbnb where they had to lay off 25% of their staff and they literally, and I know it's a, it's a very long read, but if you Googled this up where what Airbnb did and the way that their CEO announced it, it's the most human approach I've ever seen to having to deliver some really, really challenging and bad news for people. Now, when I think about what they did, and the advice I'd also give outside of this is you've just got to be honest with people. If it's bad news, 
you shouldn't try and sugarcoat it in some other way. And, and sometimes we try and do that because it helps us feel better as the deliverer. So I think the first thing is to be honest. The second thing is, and it's really hard with this one, is you've got to be able to clearly communicate it so people can make sense of why you're doing what you're doing. And that's why I love the Airbnb approaches. You could tell that they'd left no stone unturned to try and keep as many people as they could, but they simply got to a point where they couldn't. But but it's really clear in their process of what they've been through to try and do that. And then they just, they told the truth. They supported the people. And, and I think the other thing with this is helping people to understand that we aren't just our CV. We aren't just where we went to college and jobs we've had. There's another side of us, which is what I call our transferable or our human skills. And I think this is where some organizations are doing this better is when they've allowed people to tap into understanding more about their transferable and human skills is that can help them in a time where, you know, you're not going to, you're going to find it hard to get a job if you're in the travel industry or hospitality or whatever it may be is how can you leverage your transferable and human skills, your skills around empathy and compassion and problem-solving creativity? How do you take those skills and put them to the forefront so that when you're looking for another job in a different industry, that you've got something to talk about? And I think this is a key point. Uh, I spoke about this on radio here in Australia not long back, is start to talk to your people about the importance of building those transferable skills. People call them soft skills. Rebecca, I really... I think that's a term that we need to get rid of. These human skills are really critical. So I'd say that's something for managers to look into as well. And the other thing I think for managers too is be human yourself. Like share a bit about how you're feeling about what you're having to do and be genuine about it. Like the thing about this pandemic is it's like no other change or transformation we've had to go through. It's affecting everybody. A lot of times when we do change, it comes from the top and tends to affect the masses. This is impacting on everyone. So the other advice for managers is be open, be vulnerable about how you're feeling too, and don't hide behind the corporate jargon, the, the usual corporate words that I'm really sorry, it's a, it's a decision that we've had to make and it, it, don't go into that too much. Be genuine, be human and, and open up to how you're actually feeling about what you're doing would be some advice I'd give. Absolutely. I, I love so much about what you just said. One of the things I want to talk about first was that point you made about transferable skills. And I got to say this too, like when you talk about, you know, human skills instead of uh, soft skills, I agree completely. I've talked about it on the podcast. I've talked to other people about it too. I started calling them essential skills instead of soft skills because they're underestimated in relation to their importance. And when we think about the workplace of the future, the reality is, is that we can talk about different technical skills that people have today but those technical skills will be obsolete in the next couple of years, you know, or so. So those skills have to continually be changed, evolved, new skills need to be developed, which is good. But the skills that will help people be successful in the future are those that allow them to pivot, those that allow them to be creative, as you mentioned, to come up with new solutions, and those that allow them to be successful in communicating with the people around them. And those are those essential skills that we're talking about, the things that help people be successful with other people and help them really fully leverage their creativity effectively so they can solve the challenging problems that we face in the world or as companies today. Yeah, look, I think if we're going to look at how it could be better in the future, I think just quickly talk about where we've come from, I think is important. So we come out of a system 
that rewards technical competence because we've had no other way. It's like this sort of management system that started back around 103, 104 years ago was based around you know, working on production lines, humans as units of labor and building technical skills in order to become more productive. And ultimately, you know, and I know this in my own career, I got promoted when I was back in the corporate world because I was technically good. If I was good at solving problems in the call center, I became the call center manager. If I was good at selling parcels in the logistics space I was in, I became the sales manager. But those technical skills could only take me so far and they're important. I'm going to say that they are an important part of your job. But if we think people are going to change careers a lot, as we already have, you know, six or seven career changes, we're going to, there's going to be multiples of that now. So your ability to build those essential skills that you call them, which I really love, those transferable skills, the organisations of the future that will succeed will embrace those. They will start to look at CVs differently. They will start to interview candidates for roles differently. They won't be looking for just what, I, what they call the star approach here, like, you know, situation, task, action, result. It's going to be more like, tell me how you responded and reacted. What was your emotional response to things when they happened? Um, how were you able to influence people to do what they didn't want to do? How were you able to bring people together and connect with them in order to be successful, like we're tapping into something here, which is an adaptive change. It's changing our beliefs, values and behaviours that success is bred from technical competence to this idea that success comes from the combination of technical competence with our transferable essential or human skills. So I think this is the challenge. This is a really challenging piece. It's easy to talk about it. But it's hard to do it because as you as you would know, as I do, and, and your listeners will know, is we tend to gravitate towards what rewards us. And if we've been rewarded for being technically good, we're actually telling people to let go of something that's made them successful in order to adapt to a new world. This is the big challenge now. And and if we if we can't build that trust I spoke about before, if we can't start there and create a safe space for these conversations to have be had. Um, it's going to be challenging, but I hold hope. I really do hold hope, and I'm starting to see that at an individual level, humans are now starting to realise that they aren't their CVs and that they're more than that, and they're really starting to ask the question about what are those skills that I've got that are going to allow me to survive into the future of work, which will be maybe in a different industry, but using my essential skills to help me and another organisation be successful. It's an adaptive challenge, this one not a technical fix, and we should treat it that way. And the successful organisations that come out of the other end of this in a good space, the, you know, the ones that aren't selling toilet paper, as you said, or face masks, are the ones that will get creative around the types of human beings they employ. Oh, absolutely. And I think then you're also talking about focusing on the unique skills that people bring based on their kind of unique experience, perspectives, skills, strengths instead of leaving those skills on the table in lieu of the perceived technical skills that they need. And so what you're looking at then is an employee that's not as engaged, not as passionate about their work, and may not stay. So what an amazing thing to think about. Here's an opportunity to leverage people's full ability to the best that we can without leaving those additional skills and strengths on the table because we might be underestimating their importance. Yeah, and, and the challenging thing here is that the question that is asked is how do you measure the success of the transferable or the human skills? Because how do you put them on a KPI sheet? How do you say 
I've got a target of you to be compassionate 10 times this week and you did it 11 times, Mark, well done. Or you only did it five and you, you need to get better. It's But we can see numbers on a sheet. We can see cost reductions. We can see revenue improvements. And this is part of the challenge and the change. And we talked about this before the podcast, which is a bit this idea of we need to slow down a bit to speed up here and accept that what I call the game of human management is a longer game. And we need to hold our nerve to understand that it actually might slow down and get a bit worse before it gets better as people are starting to adapt to a new way. And this is, again, a challenging piece is we are so caught up, Rebecca, in last week's results or the quarterly report or the half-year report, or the annual report, and we're sort of trying to catch up or, or even sometimes look back. And it's hard with the human stuff because you don't see it on a KPI sheet, but you will see it by the end of the year. So when I ran an experiment with my last team in corporate, you know, I told them for three months we wouldn't look at our sales figures, and they were horrified. But by the end of the year, we were over 200% ahead of our targets because we focused on on key things like being thankful, being helpful, caring for each other, having fun, you know, connecting, creating a sense of belonging. We didn't look at them on a KPI sheet. We just became aware of them. And ultimately, it helped that other KPI sheet look very, very healthy. So you've got to trade one off to get the other. And I think that's the hard part for managers to let go of what's made them successful in the past. Absolutely. But the reality is that sometimes when organizations work towards metrics and numbers, they're missing out on opportunities, but they're also encouraging employees and their organization as a whole to achieve numbers rather than to achieve outcomes. I mean, those outcomes could be better than those numbers project. So that's what's really interesting about that experiment that you ran is thinking about changing the behaviors in the organization and focusing on those behaviors that are most likely to, to bring better outcomes for the team, for the organization, for your customers, and the results you achieve are amazing. So I think it's interesting for organizations to think about what level of risk are you willing to take? Sometimes this might be what level of risk is your leadership or what level of risk are your stakeholders or your shareholders willing to take for you to do better as an organization, For the not even just for the people within your organization, but really for the customers that you serve or to make a bigger impact in the world. So what would you think about if you were advising someone to close that gap and take that risk of changing those behaviors in the organizations and shifting away from the focus on achieving metrics and numbers, uh, what would be the first step that an organization might take to go that direction to see if they can achieve those types of results? Okay, so I, I really like your point about what type, what sort of risk are you prepared to take? Some people might think that this is a significantly risky thing, and it could be. You could totally throw out the old way and bring in a new way, but that's dangerous, and I would absolutely say don't do that. This is adaptive. I keep using this word adaptive change. This is adaptive change, and in adaptation, species or whatever you want to say change in, in small increments over continually over a long period of time. So I'd, I'd say my advice is to step into this as an adaptive challenge and just make small changes and continually make small incremental changes over a longer period of time. So that'd be the first thing. And, you know, what does that look like? Simply, like I said at the start, is start with trust. Have, start some conversations with your people around trust. Start conversations with people around what they expect of you. I have these first five questions that I share with managers to talk to their people about. The first one is, what do you expect of me as your manager? The second one's about, 
what's your work style preference? So talking to people about how they do their best work. Is it, do they need guidance all the time? Do they want to be autonomous? Simple conversations like that. And then a third one is this idea of how do you achieve balance? How do you achieve balance, not just for your work perspective, but for life? So I think just starting with conversations is a great place to kick off. And, you know, it doesn't mean you've got to re-engineer all your KPIs or, or totally change the way you do things and do that quickly. My advice is step into this in a safe way, run safe experiments, and then assess the impact of those experiments and then tweak them slightly and then adapt a bit again. And then keep just going through that same process. And don't throw out all of the things that you've done in the past, because I think that scares people more than taking a a more adaptive approach to that. So that's where I'd tell them to start. Yeah, that makes a whole lot of sense. And I think also the importance of thinking about those potential incremental failures. And so if they're smaller in size or smaller in the level of disruption that they might have on your company, that risk, although that small risk may not pay off, there's an opportunity for you to learn and adjust and like you mentioned, not necessarily throw everything away, but think about what have we learned and how do we move forward from what we've learned over those little incremental changes that you might make over time. But I think that's one of the things that too, like when you think about building the future, think about building the future of organizations, building the future of work and looking at more of a human-centered work of the future, which you know, I think you mentioned earlier here in our conversation just really gives you hope. So what are some of the other things that give you some optimism for the future? Let's think about what we're going through now and how it's brought people together. It's literally humans coming together to form some sort of community to deal with something that we're all going through. It's like, how do you tap into that? But what gives me hope is in times of crises, humans come together really well. Now, I'll also say this. Unfortunately, over time with this pandemic, I also am seeing the, the best of humanity and some of the worst of humanity. You know, we're starting to see some people are now using this pandemic to serve themselves. My hope is that the collective voice will be stronger than the individual voice. And the other thing that gives me hope is that humans in all are well-intended. We're well-intended creatures to help ourselves and help others to be safe and to be successful. And my hope is is that we don't forget some of the lessons that we learned right at the start of, you know, when this pandemic really sort of started to hit in late March, that we need to go back and reflect on some of the ways we changed our behaviour and how we can not just see that as something we had to do at a point in time, but we started to get curious about what would it be like if we were like that all the time? Why is it that it's taken a pandemic to make us human? And my hope is that we'll get above the noise of what we've been talking about here a bit, Rebecca, of the weekly scorecard and the numbers and and these things, even though they're important, and we'll start to tap more into that, creating the safety net, giving people a sense of clear purpose about why they're relevant and how they contribute to an organisation. When we've had to make the challenging decisions, you know, to lay people off and restructure our businesses, that we've done it in a very human way, like they did at Airbnb. It's it's starting to realise that even in times of challenge, we can, I hope, do things in a more human way than in the past, which I think has been quite cold and callous. And as I call it, just putting the red pen through someone's name on an organisational chart that we're going to move away from this. I'm seeing seeing some great examples of some of my clients here who said that you know, their approach to business now is much more human because what they've all felt themselves. So my hope is we can take our individual experiences and we can bring them into a collective and we can start to practice business in a more human way rather than 
that sort of old robotic, archaic, hierarchical-based system. So that's, I, I think there's hope. And the other hope I have is that, you know, our next generation of managers and leaders who have gone through this as well, and I know there's a lot of talk about, you know, that the, the millennials and these ones, they want something different, is, is that they actually follow through on that and challenge some of us, you know, I'm 53, challenge some of us more mature humans or older humans to be held to account, I think is something that's important as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a great vision for us to think about because we're not even just talking about things are potentially better in the future because we become more human or more human-centered or human-focused. And a lot of us have seen those organizations make those shifts, especially in the time of this global pandemic, realizing, especially given the nature of work today, where multitudes of people are working from home, as you mentioned in your state, Pretty much everybody is, is has to work from home because you don't have an alternative. You're stuck at home <laughs> except for one hour of the day. So unless you're an essential worker or something along those lines. So organizations need to make that shift in thinking about people's lives, how the intersection of their outside lives and work has become less clear. So before we might have had a clearer boundary of here's my home and here's my life outside of work. And now here I miss my life at work. I mean, I can certainly experience that with my kids, you know, schooling from home at least half of the time. So there's a lot of interruptions, a lot of kids in the background calling for me and so forth. I mean, that boundary of work and life is kind of erased or is not as clear as it used to be. Yeah. I think organizations definitely need to make that shift and thinking about how these human beings in my workplace versus these resources that are filling jobs are living out in the world and how this new world is impacting them. Yeah. Look, you make a great point here. Just, just very quickly, I'll share a quick story. I just wrote about this last week. It was published in a HR magazine here in, in Oz. And um, I have this view. We talk about allowing humans to bring their whole selves to work. You know, this is a bit of a catchphrase these days. But my question is, if we want them to bring their whole selves to work, why do we only measure their effectiveness based upon work-related KPIs? So one of the things I did with my last team is we actually built non-work-related KPIs into their performance plan. And allocated some of their bonus to things like goals for self, goals for family and goals for community. And look, what I saw happen with this was incredible, was like reduced office hours by up to 30% for some of the people, improved productivity and business results, a stronger sense of connection to self and to family and to community. And, And look, ultimately, Rebecca, great business results. So this idea of work-life balance I don't like because work's part of your life. I like this idea of life design is that I think the organizations of the future as well will start to see the human as the whole human and have these conversations around, we want you to be the best version of yourself. We want you to be happy and engaged and all of these things. So what we're going to invest in as well is helping you to be that by incentivizing you to step into the things that you'd like to do for yourself. So for instance, one of my people, his family goal was to go for a walk on the beach with his wife two days a week. And he got 5% of his bonus for doing that. So this idea that if work life are integrating and we're seeing it with the way things are today, how about we go past flexible time and dressing up in casual clothes on a Friday so people feel more like they're human and, and actually start to incentivize and reward them for turning up as the whole human. This is a bit radical, but I can tell you that it worked. And the only problem I had is that my HR team at the business I was at resisted me doing this. They said, there's no precedence, there's no policy, 
and there's no process. And I think HR have got a bit of work to do here in getting their heads out of the old way and, and stepping into the new way. Oh, yes. Well, hey, now you have established a precedent. So that's amazing. And I think there's so much research even to back up what you just said. So having that integration, right, work-life integration, working well, that allows you to have more of that focus on your work. It lowers the level of complexity. I think having this level of flexibility in the types of places you achieve in your life or the types of places you're satisfied in your life or the types of places where you feel fulfilled allows you to do better work. It leads to better outcomes. And so even though it seems counterintuitive, it makes perfect sense. And so I'm glad you set that precedent and put that out in the world for other people to consider. So we've talked a lot about positive things and things that would make us optimistic. And of course, we also talked a lot of challenges that workplaces face today in making this transition that nobody expected this year, but was really uh, something that I think was lying in wait to some extent for us to make this shift towards more human-centered workplaces. What are some of the things, though, that might make you concerned about the future? The greatest concern I have is that historically, the past history will tell us that even in other times of crises, um, the GFC, stock market crashes, whatever it might have been, is we've had the greatest intention to change and to be better. And, you know, we won't do the things we did before. But I want to say this, the old system, the old system is very, very strong. And the old system is also very, very clever at knowing when to pop its head back up again and retake what it believes is the ground that it should have. So our biggest challenge is that the old system will resurface in some way. And it's very, very clever too, Rebecca. It doesn't just pop out straight away and go, here I am and I'm back and I'm here to take over. It'll creep back in in different ways. I'll give you an example. You know, Managers will stop doing the sort of connecting things they've been doing and, and getting to know their people and, because they'll have to go back to doing the real work. So in little ways, it'll just find its way back into the to business. And then over time, a collective of the little ways will mean that the, the old system gets back and we're back into, you know, it's all about the KPIs. It's all about the hierarchy. We haven't got time for the soft and fluffy and fuzzy conversations. And so this is our greatest challenge. I said this to Mike Ficarty when I was talking to him at his Schumann's first rally. I said, we need to be ready for when the old system appears back out of the shadows that it's hiding in, and we need to fight it off and push it back to where it needs to be. So I think the greatest challenge is that we see that happen and we look the other way and we allow it to come in. I think as a collective, we've got to be courageous enough to stop it in its tracks and go, you're no longer required here. I think that's what we need to be doing. And that's challenging because in some respects, that old system's made us all successful. So we're going to have to be prepared to lose something individually in order for the collective to win. And that's it's hard because we're a survival species. Yeah, absolutely. But maybe that is what we need because I, I don't know that we're leading towards our best outcome as a society if we continue in the old system, as you mentioned. So if it really is about our survival and us thriving in society or even as individuals, this shift needs to happen. And now is the perfect time to do it. And so many great examples of success stories of those organizations, even some you mentioned here today on the show, other stories out in the world of organizations taking that risk, making drastic changes in order to help become more human focused, help their people be successful, think differently about what leads to great outcomes, focus on the research that's been done over many years that's been ignored. But I think maybe a lot of it does come back to what we talked about briefly or what you brought up a couple times, which was we need to slow down to speed up. And maybe it's time for us to slow down because I think it's just like working fast at the pace we've been working 
is a barrier to change because then we fall back on the old ways. Yeah, look, I guess to sort of wrap that up, our busyness has become a badge of honour. It's almost like if we're not busy, then what are we? And we're worried that if we're not busy, then we're not going to be accepted. And perhaps we fear that we won't have our jobs because we're not busy enough. I think we've got to get out of this idea of busyness as a badge of honour and start when people ask you how you are, instead of saying you're busy, just stop for a minute and then say to them, I'm productive. And I think that's a big change to go from busyness to being productive is, is just a mindset shift that we've got to think about as well. Yeah. So that sounds like a great call to action for folks out there. Think about making that shift from being busy to being productive and adding value because all of us have that ability to do it with our own personal strengths, our own personal experiences, our perspectives, our skills. Take those things, stop working so many hours and start thinking differently about the value you provide to the people around you, to your organizations and out in the world. So great call to action for folks listening today. I mean, also some amazing information, Mark, that you provided today on the show. So thank you so much for joining me. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you on. I'm really, really delighted to be speaking to you. Thanks, Rebecca. Mark has dedicated his career to helping organizations rethink their keys to success by focusing on the heart of their business, their people. By creating environments where humans can thrive, both employees and the companies they work for will uncover tremendous benefits. Research has shown that an engaged and happy workforce experience better well-being and productivity, while the company realizes higher profit margins. I'll place a few links in the episode notes in case you'd like to explore this further. Making the shift from focusing on what we do to thinking more about who we are as people can be difficult. In the thick of planning the tactical path to completing goals, mapping out what needs to be done is a natural approach. However, if that path does not take into account human nature, it may unintentionally lead to burnout, disengagement, or an inability to meet the desired goal. When reframing your mindset in a way that takes into account what makes people thrive, in a way that improves their engagement and increases their productivity, it will allow you to create an environment to help people work at their best. It can also lead to those benefits beyond the intended goal, those that lead to innovation and improved customer satisfaction. At the end of the day, we're all humans. To work at our best, we need an environment where we feel we belong, where we have a sense of purpose, and where we feel psychologically safe. The good news is that there's something that all of us can do to create that environment for ourselves and for those around us. So what's stopping you? Go on, go help shape the future. To learn more about Mark's amazing work, go to marklebusque.com. That's Mark, L-E-B-U-S-Q-E.com. Follow Humans Now and Then on Instagram and Twitter to continue the conversation. I am Rebecca Scott, and this is Humans Now and Then, hosted and produced by Rebecca Scott. Episode notes can be found at humansnowandthen.com. Thank you for listening.